Plan your work and work your plan. For many athletes, words like these are scripture. Permanent signposts lining the long road to success. The very act of pursuing a career in sports gives a sense of control, a sense of safety. Just stick to the plan, good things will follow. That is, until life hits you. The kind of life that happens when you're making other plans. Devastating setbacks, seemingly mundane moments, when things change unexpectedly and catch you without looking. Then the first question becomes, what's your next play? From the Players' Tribune, I'm former National Hockey League goaltender Corey Hirsch. And I'm psychiatrist Dr. Diane McIntosh. Welcome to Blindsided. Mental health, sports, and life. This episode contains content that may be difficult to hear. Please check the show notes for more information. Listener discretion is advised. You know, play a bad round of golf, man, people don't like me. Play a good round of golf, people love me. So that in my head was just cycling through. Instead of focusing on how beautiful my wife was and how much she loves me and how much my kids love me and and what we're doing in the community, I was focused on the numbers were dictating who I was as a person. When I'm going through it, you can't think clearly or I can't think clearly. So I didn't see it until after I backed away and I I started seeking help and and went to the hospital and went to the different things and and then had the right people talking to me. On this episode of Blindsided, we welcome Bubba Watson. Bubba is a professional golfer on the PGA Tour. He's won 12 PGA events, including the Green Jacket, at the most prestigious golf tournament in the world, the Masters, in both 2012 and 2014. But few knew that during that time, Bubba was struggling with anxiety. His new book, Up and Down, details how his anxiety affected him personally, professionally, and physically. Bubba talks to us about how the death of his father made him more aware of his anxiety. He details a trip to the hospital due to a panic attack, and he describes how faith helps him get through his darkest moments. From victory to desperation and everything in between, Bubba's story is something so many can relate to. Here's Bubba Watson on Blindsided. So, Bubba, we know that you were born in Baghdad in Florida, and I always like to ask the same question when I start out, which is, what was it like growing up in your house? Tell me a little bit about your childhood. Oh, wow. Um, I thought my childhood was phenomenal. You know, you learn positive and you learn negative as a child, and hopefully you take a lot more positive out of the negative. We played all sports. I played baseball. I played uh, golf at age six, played baseball at age four. Played baseball for many years, played basketball for many years. Never could play football. My dad said, no football. You're one play away from getting really injured. And, you know, growing up, my sister, she's two, two and a half years older. I mean, we rode around on our bikes around the whole neighborhood of Baghdad. Um, There was a baseball field. um, And we'd go over there and we'd play. It's changed over the years. It's gotten a lot better with parks and all the things. But it was just a baseball field when we were kids. Uh, ride my bike about six blocks to school, um, elementary school, Baghdad Elementary. There was a small building 
a couple blocks away that was the post office is one little small building for the families in that in Baghdad. So I would go, uh, that would be my chore. I'd get to go and get the mail. The lady knew who I was. I mean, she pretty much knows everybody, but I didn't have a key. So she would just take my mail and take it out of the box and hand it to me. Um, now there's a big old, big old building that's now with parking lot and everything that's a post office. It's, it's grown over the years. So it's changed a little bit, but um, yeah, the, the beauty of Baghdad for me was was my friends getting to go everywhere. My parents trusted me. Parents knew that I, I knew right from wrong, so they could trust me to do things. Different time than now. You know, we're talking, what is that? Gosh, 35 years ago, uh, give or take. It's I mean, just a different time in our world too, but it was, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was fun. Me and my mom would throw the baseball out in the front yard. I'd hit plastic golf balls around the yard. Um, but like I said, um, the more we dig into the book, the more we dig into me, um, there was negative, um, but I took all the positive, tried to take all the positives, and I don't really look at the negatives, but it definitely shaped who I am and, and some of my problems and some of my goodness as well. <laughs> Bubba, can you hit on a couple of the, and I'm a glass half full kind of person here, I'm always focused on the positive, working on forgiveness, all that sort of thing, but would you mind just hitting on some of those negatives that you thought really were important in developing the kind of Bubba we see now, the things about yourself that you feel were really formative from those early experiences? Yeah, I'd have to say right off the top of my head would be um, my dad, um, love him to death, but he said, don't don't trust, you can't trust anybody. Um, you know, they have to earn trust. And he said, all a poor man has is his word. Um, so trust is everything. Um, and you know, never lie. Um, it's easy to say hard to do. Um, I lied as a kid, but you know, with this book and and everything going on in my life, I've tried to tell the truth and, and share everything that I've been through. I would have to say, you know, obviously watching him drink, having a beer in his hand at all times, he was used to alcohol. I guess that's the best way to say it. I never really saw him like drunk, um, had a cigarette in his hand at all times pretty much all times. My mom, you know, my mom's personality is hard work, very kind of negative thoughts, um, negative talk. Where the, where, and, you know, again, this is all the, the bad stuff. There was a lot of great, don't, don't get me wrong there. But um, so yeah, that's probably the things that stick out right off the top of my head. Um, yeah. That definitely shaped me in, in a way. There's a lot of good in all of us and there's a lot of negative in all of us. I would have to say that's what shaped a lot of my things, especially coming forward, especially as I turned pro and standoffish and media and in life. And so, yeah. Yeah, no worries. Sounds like my parents, man. <laughs> well, really I, does, listen, so. I think we're all the same because my kids are thinking the same thing. So, yeah. <laughs> So we know from what you've talked about very bravely, and I know I have two very brave men in front of me who are, you know, athletes, elite athletes who have spoken about something that people just did not talk about until very recently. So I got to give kudos to both of you for that. But one of the things you've talked about is anxiety. And I know I'm digging into this kind of early, but some of the stuff that you talked about with mom and dad, that dad always had a drink, mom had a lot of negative thoughts and spoke in a negative way. And I wonder if looking back on that now and your own journey in anxiety, if you wonder whether or not, well, we know that there's a hereditary part to this, but do you think that they were experiencing anxiety themselves? 100%. I, I, you know, 
I'm not a doctor, but I would have to say a lot of us are, if not all of us. You know, bills need to be paid. Kids need to be taken care of. My dad left it, give or take, just before 6 o'clock, came home around 5.30 at night to go to work. My mom took her lunch break to make sure that we never rode the bus from school. Um, they worked hard. Um, that's the positives, right? The positives is they'd worked hard to make sure they provided for their two kids. Dropped me off at the golf course. So, yeah, there was a lot of things, trying to raise their kids the right way. You know, the negatives that their kids were doing, they had to deal with that as well. So, yeah, I mean, you know, when the anxiety, I would have to say for sure with all the stuff going on in life. You know, my dad went to Vietnam. There's probably some things that he didn't deal with from Vietnam and got drafted. I remember he won't sit with, he wouldn't sit, he's no longer alive, but he wouldn't sit, he would sit like this with nobody behind him. If we went to a restaurant, he couldn't have anybody behind him because he was always, he was always watching, he was always seeing. And I noticed everything. I can tell you everything that's happening in this room at this moment while I'm talking to y'all. And because it's a learned trade, I've learned it. I picked it up from my dad. I don't want to go in an enclosed room because elevators scared my dad. My mom's afraid of heights. I'm deathly afraid of heights. I can't stand flying. So I've learned things. But yeah, I'd have to say for sure they had a bunch of anxieties, a bunch of things going on from their childhood. My dad's obviously Vietnam experience and different things. Baba, I probably should have started by, you may have already been told this, but I'm, I am a psychiatrist. So before I went to medical school, I was a pharmacist. So my practice of psychiatry is focused on medication, but I believe in talk therapy. I believe in exercise, your healthy gut biome, all that sort of thing. So I think you've just, there's so much to unpack here that I think is, <laughs> is really important because uh, I was going to ask you about don't trust anyone and how that impacted you. But now I'm realizing where a lot of that came from as well, from your dad. So I'd love you to talk a little bit about that, but also on how two seemingly quite anxious people, one of them maybe with ADHD, created a marriage, and how was being raised by these two together? <laughs> um, well, first of all, I hope you don't quit after talking to me, because I got a lot of stuff. Um, and then my, my dad was... There's no other way to say it. He was the bad man on campus. He was he was the the tough guy. He was um, Pensacola Beach um, when he came back from Vietnam. They they moved from wherever they moved from. They went. He was born in Charlotte and then moved to Pensacola Beach. Uh, so after the military, he was he was the bad man. He was the one that before bouncers were cool. He was the bouncer. Uh, and my mom moved from uh, Boonville, Mississippi. She went to Mississippi State. Graduated there and said, I want to get away from the farm. I want to go to the beach. Pensacola Beach happened to be the place. Um, she was working, if I remember correctly, she was working at a bar at a young age. Um, so she moved there right away to, to bartend just so she could live at the beach. And um, that's where she met my dad. So it was kind of like, you know, you, you get attracted to this tough man. The one thing that stands out in my head, and I do this to this day, is... My mom and dad, they kissed when they left each other. They kissed when they first saw each other. It didn't matter if they were fighting. You know, we all fight. Don't, let's don't hide that. And it's the same thing I do with my wife is like I kiss her goodbye because that might be the last time or it could be, you know, hopefully I'll come back. And um, so I kiss her when I get back. Same thing she does when she leaves. It's just a trained thing that I think is meaningful for love. You know, I, I learned some, but at the same time, I, I just think that they, they fell in love because of his toughness. And um, I guess they were good-looking people back then. Uh, you know, I don't know. Um, but that's the love story that I know of. You know, 
true or not, that's what they told me. <laughs> was he also gentle or was he tough with you guys as well with his kids? So it's it's a it's a great question. Um, I would have to say, outside the house, he was the toughest man I've ever seen. He wore bright colors. He wore flowered shirts. He wanted everybody in the world to know that you don't talk to him. He's the, he's, he talks to you. He's a bad man. Um, he didn't have to he didn't have to say anything. You just knew it. Like when you saw him, um, people respected him though. Um, People in the community of Baghdad respected him. When he passed away, I mean, they go by my house and honk now just to just to honor my mom. Um, let's see. I mean, you say bad in the—you mean tough, right? Just yeah, so that, tough. Sorry, he was a bad— Yeah, no, 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 because nice. we're Canadians, too, and we'll be like— <laughs> Yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, he's I a mean, tough man. Either way, you know, yeah, I got it. Not to yeah. get into records, but he has definitely been to jail. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> so he, my mom said that—gosh— Either before my sister was born, who was born before me, or before I was born, she said, you cannot go back to jail, so quit fighting. Again, like I said, on the beach, he was, when somebody had a problem, they called Gary. And when they called Gary, that means you better watch out. I wonder for a guy who's gone to Vietnam and then comes back, can't have anyone behind him. You, you guess from the story you've told that he certainly had some PTSD, and I think most people who come back from a combat role in Vietnam had at least some degree of PTSD. And so he may have been a completely different person than when he went over there, but came back with that, I got to fight, I got to be tough. But it sounds like despite all of that at home, he was kind and loving. Yes, he, well, the first time we said I love love each other uh, was when he told me he had cancer. I flew home the next day or, or that, I took a red eye that night got home and we hugged on the front porch. First time I ever said, I love you. And he said, I love you. Um, you know, it, my childhood, I mean, everybody's different. Um, I feel like I didn't need him to say that to me because he provided a roof over my head. He provided golf clubs, equipment. He, you know, he showed me love in so many different ways, made sure I could go to golf tournaments. He traveled, you know, they took turns. If I was going to a tournament, it might be my mom this week. It might be my dad next week. So I never needed it, but I mean, when I say I never needed it, I didn't think about it. I just knew that they loved me. Um, and then when he got the cancer, um, and that's when I started changing my life, wanted to grow my faith and do all these things. You know, that's when I, I mean, we cried on the front porch. Um, but yeah, he was very tenderhearted. He, he, and like I said earlier, he put out this image that he was the toughest man on the planet, but inside the house, he was, he's a teddy bear. Uh, same thing I do. I mean, for years, I put out this persona that I was a tough dude um, and nothing bothered me. Words didn't hurt me, but obviously I wrote a book that showed that words do hurt me. Mm -hmm. um, but to my kids, I, I mean, I, I say prayers to my kids every night. We talk about things, we do things. And I try to be opposite of my dad. And my dad's always said, be better than him when I grow up. And so I don't, I'm not saying I'm better than my dad, but I'm trying to do things differently to show love. And, and we're in a different situation with two adopted kids. So it's a different challenge in itself. But yeah, I'm trying to do a little different than what than what I had growing up. Um, not in a bad thing, but just yeah. differently. No, you know what? Th thank you so much for sharing that. I know it's not easy. And yeah, my dad was very, he was stoic. And I, I still, to this day, don't think he's told me he loves me. But I know he loves me, right? You, you just know. Right. You know they do. Um, and we'll get into a, a little bit of the golf here. It, it sounds like growing up, you could just play. There's a, there's a an interesting scene in uh, Goodwill Hunting that I love where he explains how he does the math part. He just gets it. 
right? And I felt the same growing up. You put a basketball in my hand, you put a baseball in my hand, you put a hockey stick in my hand. Well, golf is a different story, but I could just always do it, right? You tell me to follow a schedule. You tell me to look at time. You tell me to, like, it's like, you might as well be, uh, I just, I don't get it. I don't see it. So you, were you like that? Did you ever feel like that when you were younger? Like a, as an athlete, you could just do that, all of it? Um, yes, 100%. I feel like today I could have been a quarterback. I could have been a wide receiver. I could have played yeah. any sport. Um, I was left-handed pitcher, played first base like Don Mattingly was my idol. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, I picked up golf, started playing golf. I would never, I would never pick up a book. Now I do, but uh, I, I wouldn't back then. And so, <laughs> yeah, every every sport was I thought was easy, um, and I got it. You know, it's yeah. the, the it's the IQ too, right? Understanding where to be, where not to be, things like that. So yeah, it was simpler for me. It was easier for me to to see in my head. So school would have been like so when I was um, trying to, I, I was just felt like the NHL was a goal. So school, like I was fifty percent. I passed, you know, like, cause I just didn't, I was always just felt like I was going to be a professional athlete and that's, you know, not in an arrogant way, but school for me, I couldn't apply myself because, and we'll get into ADHD and all that stuff. But when you say you couldn't read a book, that's me, that, that is me. I, I can't sit there for five minutes and, and even read the book. So were you like that in high school? Um, you know, in your school years, very, uh, similar in that sense? Yes, 100%. Uh, my mom used to cut out cards where it just had a hole in it so you could see one word at a time. Because when I looked at a page, all I looked at was a bunch of words jumbled in and then trying to read that and then trying to apply that, you know, remember that story or remember this or that. It wasn't fun for me. Um, imagery, imagination, those things were what you could get me to to understand it or or learn it that way. So my mom tried to do different things to help me learn. But um, yeah, I wanted to turn pro right after high school. So I mm -hmm. could care less about grades. Shouldn't say that way, but that's no, the it's, truth. Hey man, <laughs> it's the truth. Yeah. And then um, my mom made me go to school. She was the only one. She was the only one that ever graduated college. A true Watson with the last name Watson, like me and my sister. Um, I was the first true Watson to graduate high school. My sister dropped out. My dad dropped out at 10th grade. So yeah, I was the first true Watson with that name to graduate high school. And so then my mom was like, you're going to college. So my grades were so bad that I had to go to junior college and then, then move up from there. But You're very open about experiencing some mental illness, both anxiety and ADHD. And I wonder if you could talk about when, when you look back, because I know when you're in it in the beginning, you have no idea what's going on. But looking back from where you stand now, when do you first think that you started to be impacted by mental illness? Hmm. I mean, gosh, I would have to say as soon as I turned pro, it started, right? I mean, or, you know, you, you, I feel you learn bits and pieces. You start getting bits and pieces from your young age all the way up to now. Um, then it boils over, I guess you would say. That's how I see it or feel it. And it's not like one moment that does it. It's a bunch of moments adding up to one big moment. And so I would say definitely... 2007-ish is where I had some stomach problems where I thought I was having a heart attack. 2011-ish was the next time. And then rock bottom was, uh, it was started probably in 15, maybe like the real hitting ended in 17. 
where I went to the hospital and we did all the checks and all the things. So I would have to say, you know, it's kind of started. The first time I really noticed it was 07, something was going on. Kind of you get out of it. And then, um, so yeah, I'd have to say first part of my career when people, I finished fourth my first tournament, I was hitting it past everybody and everybody started cheering my name. And I, I believe too much positive is no good and then too much negative is no good. I just We're trying to look for that balance. You know, not communicating with my wife. So I'd say 07, not communicating the right things with my wife at that moment, keeping it inside was definitely hurting me. So 07 was probably like the the start of it starting to boil over. And then it took many years to really get to the the depth of it, I guess. I would argue that what you and Corey just talked about is probably the start of it where you're in school and you have ADHD, which is very common among young people. So difficulty with reading, hard to pay attention, great if it's exciting and interesting. This is why parents struggle so much with their kids questioning whether they have ADHD because they'll say, well, they can play a video game for eight hours straight. What do you mean they have ADHD? They can focus on that. Kids with ADHD can focus on things that are interesting, exciting, and grab them. But if it's boring, like reading, they can't do it. Math, really hard. So what comes from that, Bubba, is you keep failing or you're not doing as well as you think you should. And people are, you're being lazy. They're hard on you. You know, you're smarter than that. You should be able to do that. But you can't organize your way out of a paper bag. Do you remember those kind of experiences when you were in school? Well, I was, I, so I excelled in math. Um, I could do the problems in my head. Awesome. Um, but then I, got, then I got in trouble for not showing my work. <laughs> um, so they thought I was doing cheating or, or getting the answers some other way. Um, reading to me, I was always embarrassed of reading because the words just intensified in my head. And if the big words with more letters scared me. Um, so this day, like doing interviews and they are doing commercial shoots, they want me to read. I'm like, I don't read. I just, that's out. We're going to have to, we're going to wing it or we're not doing it. That's just how it goes. Um, so yeah, I mean, there was embarrassing moments where I just, I'm getting trouble in school. So I didn't have to read in front of the class because I was embarrassed, was scared. Obviously there's some things that I have, but yeah, I would, I would definitely in high school, elementary school, middle school, really middle school is where it started because you want to be one of the cool kids. And so I was like, I'd rather get in trouble than have to people laugh at me for reading uh, or trying to read, I guess. Diane, Bubba talks to us about his severe anxiety that he feels that he developed when he was older. But is anxiety something you're born with? I wouldn't say that you're born with anxiety, but anxiety is a normal part of life. Normal anxiety helps you to study for that exam or to do what your parents say. When they ask you to do something, you follow through because you worry that if you don't, you're going to have some trouble. That's normal anxiety that actually is quite important to keep us going in our lives and being productive through our lives. When anxiety becomes a problem, when it's dysfunctional, is when it causes a great deal of distress and it impairs your ability to function in your normal roles, all of the different roles you have at home, at work, at play, at school. So anxiety can be normal part of life, but when it becomes dysfunctional, when it impacts your quality of life, that's when you need some help. So a lot of people talk about anxiety being genetic. Is that something that is safe to say? It is not one. Anxiety disorders are not the most genetic of the psychiatric disorders. In fact, the most genetic are bipolar disorder 
as well as ADHD. But there is certainly a genetic component to some of the anxiety disorders. But I think even more important than that is that anxiety is infectious. If we're raising our children and we're really anxious and sharing those anxieties all the time, they can actually become anxious kids. So they model us. And so even more important than the genetics that we pass on are how we share with our kids, how we build their resilience, and how we can share our own anxieties with them and make them more anxious kids. So how do we recognize when a person has anxiety, a child, or even another person, a spouse, friend? How can we recognize that in somebody else? Well, anxiety can look different at different ages. So for kids, they may be more tearful, have separation reactions. So whenever their parent is out of the room, some of that is normal. But then developmentally, it becomes less normal the older you get. So there's different kinds of anxiety. What's important to know, most of us know when we feel anxious, what anxiety feels like. It's the degree, it's the amount of time it takes up in your life, and it's how it impacts your functioning. So the way you would know is because you know what anxiety feels like, and then you see someone you love, someone you care about, someone you're working with who seems to be feeling that way all the time, and it's getting in the way of their ability to do their job or to be your friend or to go to school, all those things that you try to do in everyday life. Anxiety is creating a barrier for them. I was a kid that had, I wouldn't say anxiety, but I was always moving. I was always doing something. I was always, I couldn't sit still. And people would just, family members, people, whatever, would just say, oh, that's just Corey. He just can't sit still. I'm not sure I believe that that was true in my case. Maybe I was suffering from anxiety and I, I didn't even know it. Or maybe was that just part of me being a child and my makeup. So, Corey, I know that you've been diagnosed with ADHD, and you sounded just like a kid who has ADHD by what you just described. But I do want to make the point that anxiety also is associated with ADHD. When you're a kid who has ADHD, you get in trouble a lot. You struggle in school. Your marks aren't what they should be because, you know, the report card often says little Corey isn't living up to his potential. Little Corey's behind in his reading or his math, and that can lead to anxiety. So you can have anxiety with just about every other psychiatric disorder, and it adds to the severity of the disorder. Diane, I know what I believe, which is our school system is way behind what it should be when it comes to mental illness. How can our schools be better for dealing with our children, people in general, colleges, high schools, whatever it may be, that deal with anxiety? Well, I think there's two pieces to this. One thing is that we need to start giving kids a vocabulary about mental health, what's normal and what's not, starting at a very young age. The same way we talk about sexual health, right? Kids learn about their body parts and what part belongs to them and who should be touching and who shouldn't be. That that sexual health is very similar to your mental health. If you give kids a vocabulary early on, then they're more confident and comfortable when they're having challenges. So we need to start educating kids about their mental health starting in kindergarten and increasing that knowledge over time. I do think that schools are getting better at recognizing mental illness because it's such a massive problem, and most serious mental illnesses start when 
in the teen years. That's when they tend to present. It's not uncommon to have kids that have anxiety, that are struggling with their mood, and certainly when they present with ADHD. But as they get into junior high or high school years, that's when you start to see more serious mental illnesses presenting. And in the past, people just thought, ah, he's a difficult kid or, you know, he's isolating. It's normal kid things. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's the onset of a mental illness. How do we prevent that from happening and getting too serious and intervening too late? By everyone having education, parents, teachers, and students. Bubba says his anxiety is something he struggled with from a young age. But on the course, he could escape those struggles. There, he thrived. But while this safe haven was helpful, the problems continued to fester. Yeah, sports were easy. That's where I found kind of my happiness, where I, that's when people appreciated me, like you said, loved me. And schooling was not, so I could care less about going to school. I'd fake sick all the time. Um, but yeah, you definitely, you get your, you start thriving and, and only focusing on sports because that's where people appreciate you, who you are. Or you feel that way. I'm not saying that's true, but you feel that way. So yes, all the way up till now, people truly only know me as a golfer. I've even told my wife, I said, if you define me as a golfer, then you're kind of limiting who I am as a person. Um, And so, yeah, you're 100% right. I definitely felt the same as you or or like you, uh, where I thought that people really only cared if I wins and losses. And that's the sad place to be. Absolutely. We use the words like anxiety. Everyone says, I feel anxious. You said most of us have some anxiety, but you've had some really significant anxiety. It means different things to different people. Can you talk about what anxiety means for you and how it's affected you? Oh, wow. Um, Yeah, my head gets racing, and I pull out the negative. You know, a thousand great letters, we focus on the two negatives that came, or or social media posts or, or comments on TV, so I get overwhelmed when I start having to do a lot of things in a week. I look at it again. It goes back to that book theory where like you see all these things on the calendar and I'm like, oh my gosh, how can I do that? How am I going to have time to to be the husband my wife needs or the, or the parent my kids need? And, and also put a smile on my face doing interviews and then put a smile on my face doing a clinic and sponsor stuff and this and that. And it just starts racing. And then you don't sleep as well. Then you then when you eat poorly on top of that, mm-hmm. um, you know, just things. And they add up. And then you're like, you're sluggish and you're not there. So, yeah, my anxiety just starts building up in my head based on all the things I have to do. Maybe maybe I should just retire and just do whatever I want. But um, <laughs> I am. And I, hey, it doesn't. Yeah, I don't even want to. It doesn't get any easier. It. There's other things that fill it. Yes. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so, yeah, my anxiety starts with that. It starts, it's less sleep, eating bad, not working out, then looking at the calendar, what all I have to do. And I just start getting overwhelmed. And my wife will be like, oh, slow down. This is not that much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my team around me is like, it's not that much. But they, they've they caught on. We've talked just about some things so they can catch it for me or help me catch it, or hopefully I can catch it and notice it. But yeah, my team around me has helped me. But yeah, it's the anxiety comes from seeing a bunch of things on a schedule. Feeling overwhelmed. Yes, You go 100%. to overwhelmed. There's different kinds of anxiety. And one that it sounds like there was, I read an article that an author talked about how you can come across as being dismissive or arrogant. And immediately my brain went to, okay, Bubba's got social anxiety. Because nicest people in the world who have social anxiety and people apply 
their belief, oh, well, they must be arrogant, when in fact they're just uncomfortable. They don't want to say this wrong thing. It's a struggle to because they don't want to embarrass themselves. Tell me about that for you. Is that accurate? 100%. I just want to go to Walmart and pick up food, <laughs> pick up diapers for my baby, right? Like, I, don't, I really don't. I'd rather be in the background. I love doing charity work, but I just want to be in the background. I don't care about fame or fortune or I just, that's not who I am. That's not who I want to be. It's not who I grew up to be. I grew up playing a sport because I love it. I didn't grow up a sport so I could be, have a microphone in my face or, or have to be an advocate for this or advocate for that. I just want to play golf. Um, and I want to be the husband I need to be and the dad I need to be. And it took me a while to realize that um, because people throw stuff at you. But yeah, definitely uh, in big crowds. Again, it taught as a young age. My dad didn't like people behind him. And I, I learned that. I hear that. I, I feel that. I take the negatives out because that's what our family kind of took out. And we never took out the positives of things. It all adds up to, I believe that there is some social problems that I have. Um, and, you know, some people say I talk a lot and I want to uh, be the loud voice in the room. <laughs> So, yeah, I've got a lot of things to work out. <laughs> it's called social anxiety disorder, and people don't understand how much of a disability it is because I'm sure with the people that you know well and you're really, really comfortable with, you're just regular guy. But when you're with other people in those big crowds where you're afraid of saying the wrong thing, feeling uncomfortable, it's a disability. So you mm -hmm. talking about it really will make a huge difference for other people. And it sounds like there's this sort of generalized anxiety piece of what if this, what if that, I'm worried, but now I'm worried, I worry too much, and how's that worry going to affect my worry? If I stop worrying about it, maybe the worry will happen, by God, and then your head is exploding. Is that a little bit what you've been living with inside that head for however many years you've been around? Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I worry about worrying. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a thing, like, I, you know, what I believe is we all want to be loved and we all want to be um, appreciated. Men want to be have respect. When you hear things, see things, you, you don't have that. And, and, it, and it makes me worried. Like, why? What, what's, what's wrong with Bubba Watson? Why, why don't they like me? Why are they writing this? Or why are they saying that? So, yeah, I, I go down a rabbit hole really, really fast. And I've tried to share it and let people know that we all got some things to work on. And I got a lot. It seems like today it's showing me a lot of things I got to work on. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is not the Be goal nice here, Bubba. Absolutely. We love you, so don't even worry about that. Bubba, I've learned recently, and I think the world has learned recently, a lot more about algorithms on social media and how I was taught that the way you deal with a bully or someone who's being foolish is to ignore them. And those algorithms push up the most venomous, the most negative, the most bullying comments to the top and push them in your face. I'll tell you my strategy around that is I'm not on social media, so <laughs> you can't make fun of me if I don't know. But what kind of strategies, given the anxiety that you're living with, the challenges of being in these kind of environments, what have you come up with that's helped you to endure that very public side of your life that you do not enjoy, clearly? I've had to learn to embrace it, but going to the social media side, I will take a picture. Let's say I took a picture. I send it to my assistant, and she copies and pastes it to the uh, whatever the platform is, social media platform. So it's a picture that I'm sending. It's the words that I'm saying. She might correct the spelling, but... It's words that I'm saying, and then it's um, 
I can't see the positive. I can't see the negative. And like you said, I can't, I can't get anxiety if I don't know what they're saying. So that's been going on for about, give or take seven, eight years where I don't look at it. And then I don't watch um, any interviews by me. My lowest point, I started looking at numbers and the numbers are like the FedEx Cup numbers to see where I'm at in the world ranking, um, to see where I'm at in the President's Cup or the Ryder Cup. So it was numbers. It Numbers were dictating how I felt about myself, uh, where I was in the world. And it goes back to that wanting respect, wanting love through a sport. And that's really, you can't do that. And um, so, yeah, I've, I've made measures or I've, I've started taking measures and, uh, and trying to realize what's most important in my life. And golf is just fun, so I love it. But now I just don't look at all the, the numbers or the interviews and all those things. Wild applause on this end for you. Yeah. How has that affected you? Not just disconnecting yourself from that, which is really hard when you've done it for so long. How has it affected your life? It's made it better. You know, I've always said um, commercialism is a tough thing for people, right? You want the better thing or you believe you want the better thing. You know, there's a car commercial where it has all these gray cars at Christmas time, and then there's a red car at Christmas time, and they, you want the red car. Like, why do you want the red car? But it's just what we've t- been taught or learned. And um, so staying away from those things. Uh, we don't have regular television anymore. We have just watch our movies, uh, watch our TV shows with no commercials, and, and spending more time with the family, more board games with the family, just things like that, that the things that would impact me in a positive way, being there for my wife, being there for my kids, but being there for friends as well. So we have our close group that we have a, a standing group text with um, where we can communicate and talk about problems that we have in life or our children or whatever it is. And we can all communicate and, and try to share and see, show that we're all dealing the same thing. How do we deal with it positively? Yeah, there's so much to unwrap here. And it, everything you're saying, <laughs> no, I, I love it. It's, it's so you've learned so much about yourself and gone on this self journey and being self-aware it's a gift i think well it can be a curse too <laughs> some guy you know the guys that you play with that it's like nothing bothers them and it, how do you how do you even do that but well you think that Corey, that nothing bothers them but no uh, one would have thought nothing that anything bothered bubba until he started talking no, about there's it there's right? our guys that just it, it everything is water off a duck's back and you're like they i don't get it <laughs> Right? I don't know. But I'm going to make you feel a little bit better about the social media, okay? I did television for the first time this past week, and someone tweeted, I swear, if I have to listen to Corey Hirsch commentate one more effing game, I'm going to stab myself in the face. (laughs) And then there's all sorts of good comments. But people are just cruel on social media, and it's best. I love that you say it's best just to stay off of it and how you've done it and how, you know, not to watch TV. But in 2007, so you said you're struggling at your most, but you were still great on the course. How did you accomplish that struggling with what you were doing? Like, I don't know exactly, but you're close to winning the U.S. Open, I believe. And that must have been really hard to get through. It shows your strength. Yeah, I I think sometimes we, um, as athletes, I think – um, you kind of you kind of just blank out and, and talent takes over and you have those moments. But um, for me personally, when something's going on in my life um, around me, I usually can focus inside the ropes. You know, on the golf course, we call it inside the ropes. And, um, you know, I had my first win when my dad was about to pass away in 2010, um, knowing of his throat cancer and then also a scare. We thought my, my wife might have some, uh, you know, cancer in the brain. 
Um, and then um, he passed away. And then it was like, it was like, we don't see him suffer anymore. So I won two more times real quick. Um, then I adopted my son one. So it's just kind of like moments um, in my life that kind of, it takes me away from focusing on golf and I'm focusing so much on other stuff where I can just kind of blank out on the golf course and, and just go through the motions. And when I say go through the motions, that's not the right word, but the talent takes over and my, my focus is not so much on me and hitting a bad shot. It's more about what's going on in the other parts of my life. Obviously, there is some dark moments when you're thinking about other parts of my life. But when I start focusing on me personally, that's when I, my downfall happens. Because at this stage of my life and, and at the early stage of my life, getting married, the focus shouldn't have been on me. Um, it should be focused. I should be focused on her. Now she's supporting me playing golf, but I should I should do more things for her, and maybe that would maybe play better. But athletes just sometimes get in a groove, even with stuff going on, they can make things happen. And so, um, you know, luckily for me, I made it happen a few times. I felt like the ice was my sanctuary, just mm-hmm. like you probably felt once you got on the golf course. Everything else just kind of outside the ropes. But I felt like once I got inside the boards. That was my sanctuary, and it was my only place of peace. Yes, 100%. Um, until people start yelling at you. I guess on the ice and other sports, yeah, it's not ice. as quiet. So when people start yelling at you on the other side of the ropes, that's when it gets – it's just people not fun some, anymore. Yeah, they say mean yeah. things. And, but I've been booed by 20,000 people. Don't worry. <laughs> Baba, can you, can you help me understand? Because I really want to get at what you just said, and I don't think I fully understood – that's just me, so please don't worry that it was you didn't say it clearly. When you're struggling with a lot of stuff going on around you, and my goodness, what a time when your dad's passing away, you're worried about your wife, and these are major life moments, but then you perform during those times, and you were saying that you were focused in a different way. When you're going through these rough times and you're successful, where is your focus? So 2010, when my dad was close to passing away, a couple months away, um, you know, you get around the lead um, at a golf tournament, and that's when my my focus, hyper-focus comes in. And I really don't mess up from there uh, most of the time. <laughs> I still do. but And at that moment, it was more about playing for my dad. It was more about playing golf so my dad could watch me on TV. If I'm playing bad, he can't see me on TV because they're not going to show me. And so at that moment, it was a place that I loved. I was excited about being there, playing well. And then I got in the playoff. And then I was just, when I got in the playoff, I was like, okay, my dad gets to watch me. And, uh, you know, things rolled in the back of my head. And and then winning, uh, making the putt to win, I just started crying right after that because then that's when I announced to the world that my dad was about to pass away. And um, the problem is when I, at golf, is when I focus on me, focus on I need to win, I need to do this, it goes back to me, and I'm focused more on the outcome than the moment at hand. And when I have the bad situations or tough situations going on, like with my wife at that time or with my uh, my dad at that time, then it's like golf is easy because I'm not really focused on me. I'm, I'm focused on something else, something bigger and and means more than me. It freed me up, and it just kind of let me play. Um, you know, we adopted our son. Two weeks later, I won the Masters. Because all I wanted to do is get done with my round so I could see more pictures of my son. Talk to my wife and seeing my son on, on FaceTime. Um, same thing in China. Um, I won in China, but we knew, the world didn't know, but I knew two days after winning China, my daughter was about to be born. Uh, scheduled C-section where my wife was there at the hospital. So I can sit here and tell you about wins that I've had 
because if something else great in my life is happening, something positive or or something I'm trying to do positive for somebody um, like my dad at that moment. So yeah, that's when like I get off the golf and it's all about, it's not about me and hitting a bad shot. It's about me performing for something else. And that's where um, the kind of the switch goes off and, and I've performed at a high level in those moments. Corey, why do you think games were the one place where you and Bubba felt calm? I think it's because there's a distraction to it. And we have the ability, I don't know if it's mental illness, ADHD, or what it is, but we have the ability, or I did at least, to hyper-focus. And it was the only place that I felt, I would say, safe, that I was surviving. So for me, I was always driven by hockey, and I had a goal. And so for Bubba, it was probably the same, to make the PGA Tour. It's almost as though when you're inside those ropes or when you're inside the rink or the basketball court, it's almost like you're boxed in and nothing in the outside can get to you. And that's what you're taught from a young age. I remember seeing a sports psychologist that told me nothing above the boards should bother you. It's keep it all inside the boards, everything on the ice. So you almost learn to not hear the fans and you really don't. It, it's it's almost strange, but it. I think that becomes your safe place. It, it was my safe place for me and where I felt good about myself. Can you remember a specific incident where everything outside the arena was going crazy, but somehow inside the rink you were able to perform at your best? Absolutely. Played in the National Hockey League playoffs in Vancouver. 20,000 people. The noise and just the, when you're winning the game and you score, the noise and the crowd, you can hear it then, no question. And it's motivating and you just get, it's almost like adrenaline, but you still have to stay calm. You still have to play the game, but there's just an emotional boost and it makes you forget about everything in the outside world. I can't really explain it, Diane. Maybe you can explain it better. What happens with people such as myself that are able to compartmentalize it at times. And then the the second I stepped off the ice, the minute I stepped off the ice and sat down in the dressing room, it was back. But the minute I was on the ice, I could focus like no other. It's not uncommon for me to reach out to you when I know something's going on on Twitter that you wouldn't be happy with and say, stay off Twitter. Absolutely. And your response to me is always the same. I've been booed by 20,000 people. (laughs) But how do you navigate that? How do you deal with being judged on such a public scale when you're going through such a private matter? So it's not the usual just dealing with being on the ice and your performance. You were dealing with being on the ice and your performance and all the the stuff that's going on in your head with your OCD or Bubba with his anxiety. How do you do that when you're dealing with so much inside? There was nights I didn't sleep. I'm not going to lie. There was times I couldn't eat and eventually it, it caught up with me. But here's the thing, Diane, and this is what I say about people with mental illness. You can do incredible things. I made the National Hockey League with a full-blown mental illness. I made the team. I made it on the team. Not only that, I was on the NHL all-rookie team with pretty much full-blown OCD. So the strength that people have, and, and that's not just in me, that's in a lot of people. And this is why 
weakness with mental illness and how society stigmatizes it, that's a joke. I know more people with mental illness that are some of the strongest people I know. And you learn to compartmentalize. You learn to survive. Bubba's struggles with anxiety continued to build. It even began to affect his play on the course, bringing him to a breaking point and discovering the need to look for help. So what I consider my darkest hour, uh, when I fell to my knees, in my, you know, when I talk about it in the book, um, I, in 15 is when they announced, maybe 14, I can't really exactly put it in the, the time, but they announced the Olympics. Golf has never had the Olympics. Anybody that loves sports, that cares about sports, Olympics is like the ultimate of the ultimate. And so as a golfer, you've, we've never had the Olympics. It's not even, it wasn't even fathomable when I was a kid. Um, and so now Bubba Watson has a chance to be an Olympian. At that time I was, you know, give or take top 10 in the world, maybe higher. So trying to stay top 15 in the world so I could make the team. So now you start watching the numbers fall or go forward, whatever, you know, however you're playing. So now I start, instead of worrying about golf, I'm worried about the negative of like falling out of the Olympics. And at the same time, there was the Ryder Cup going on where I was trying to make the points for the Ryder Cup. World ranking, sponsor money based on world ranking. So I just started going down this rabbit hole of all the negatives by falling when I, you know, I I finished 30th instead of 20th. So I I lost a spot in, in all these rankings. And then with all that, it just kept eating me mentally away. And I was so focused on trying to make these teams and I made the team, I made the Olympics. And when I got to the Olympics, I was like, I've worked so hard for this and I didn't play very well. I finished eighth, I think in the Olympics, but it was the experience of a lifetime. Um, And then I didn't make the Ryder Cup team and um, I was seventh in the world at the time. I didn't make the Ryder Cup team, they didn't pick me. And then the FedEx Cup and the world rankings kept going down because I was so focused on that instead of focusing on my golf and where I should be head headspace. And so all those things kept eating away. And about, you know, people started saying things about, you know, Bubba's not playing so good. He shouldn't be this. He shouldn't be that. He, he's not going to, he, you know, he's done. He's this. And so I just kept hearing all the negatives instead of the positives. And the positives are like the the charity dollars, the, the children's hospital we were building and, and being a part of. And I was focused all on the negative. And so really letting the golf dictate who I was as a person or what I thought people thought of me as a person. You know, play a bad round of golf, man, people don't like me. Play a good round of golf, people love me because now they're interviewing me and they they respect me. No, they're just doing their job. They're going to talk to anybody that played good golf. (laughs) It's just how it works. So that in my head was just cycling through Instead of focusing on how beautiful my wife was and how much she loves me and how much my kids love me and and what we're doing in the community, I was focused on the numbers were dictating who I was as a person. And, you know, again, when I'm going through it, you can't think clearly or I can't think clearly. Um, So I didn't see it until after I backed away and I I started seeking help and and went to the hospital and went to the different things and, and then had the right people talking to me. What was the turning point and where were you at that turning point? What brought you to the hospital that, Mm. and I'm hoping getting to the hospital, that was the start of the turn. But can you tell us a little bit about what got you there and how you took that turn? You know, I I kept seeing my weight go down. Um, I was roughly, we'll say 190-ish. Every week I would see it go down to high 80s, mid 80s, lower 80s, uh, then the 70s. And 
So finally, I just, I looked at my wife. I said, there's something going on. I, I, I can't, what is going on? And she's like, well, you know, this, this, and this. And, and I didn't, you know, I didn't really take heart of it. And then finally, um, I looked at the weight. I was 162 pounds, flashbacks of my dad. I bathed my dad three days before he passed away. He was 90 pounds. Me and him were about the same build, same height. So he's around 180, 190-ish. Um, and so I saw him at 90. I bathed him at 90. First of all, I never thought I'd bathe a grown man, um, let alone my powerful dad. So I saw that. When I saw 162 on the scale, my head is flashbacks. It's flashbacks of my dad, the vision of my dad, the vision of this tough, great man passing away of cancer. And I'm not saying I had cancer. I'm not saying any of that. I just, these are the flashbacks. And um, I fell to my knees. I remember my, my bed's around 12 to 15 feet from my bathroom, the scale. I came around the corner, fell to my knees right at my bed and said, take me. I wanted the Lord to take me. I said, I don't want to go through this. I don't want my wife to go through this. I don't want my kids to go through this. You know, because all I could see, I'm, I'm visionary. So all I could see was the vision of my dad and about, I mean, I'm, I'm gaining on that. I'm going the wrong way. I knew that the body can't survive that way. And so I was at my last moment and I just said, I, I take me. I don't want to go through this. I have stomach pains at the same time. So there was other things going on. I said, I can't do it. I'm not man enough to do this. I don't know what's going on. There's something going on. And that's when I, I literally got off the floor. And in my head, uh, a voice in my head said, if this is your last 10 minutes, then go in there and be the best you can possibly be for your wife. And I said, I said, wow. And so then I jumped up and I was like, if this is my last 10 minutes, if this was the longest heart attack in history, if this is something that's really gonna take me, I need to give 10 minutes to my wife and tell her that, you know, there's gonna be another great man that, that is better than me for her. There's gonna be a great man for these kids. I need to go talk to my kids because they were in the other room. My wife was in the kitchen. My kids were playing in the playroom. And then I was like, well, so now, now as I get in, getting up, it goes 30 minutes. If you have 30 minutes, if you have a week, if you have six months, years, then you need to do something about it, about being better for them, being better for the people that I'm entrusted to lead. And um, that's when I went and told her, broke down and cried, like I'm almost crying now, uh, broke oh, down and cried too, but... and, and said, I need help. And um, so we went to the hospital and did all the monitors, did all the things. And I was like, look, something's going on. They said, everything's right. You're perfect in every way. And I said, well, they're not. I said, something's going on. So it was basically, instead of the, I don't know how to word this the right way, but instead of the negative um, self-medications, it was basically eating me alive. I don't, I don't drink. I've never been drunk. I've never done a drug. Um, I hate taking aspirin. And so it was eating me alive, the, all this stuff going on. I was eating. It wasn't like I wasn't eating. There was pain every time I ate in my stomach. And so I, I said, something's going on. And I started reaching out to more people, more close friends. And we just talked our way through it. And I just, like I'm talking with y'all. It's freed me up to be able to talk to about anything, getting more into the Bible, getting more into the Word, and more uh, faith-based. My wife, you know, my pastor and different things like that. Mm -hmm. So they were your guides through this? Yeah, they were my, they were the people I could speak with and talk to and then, you know, they could share with me. And like I've always said, your wife is, for me, it's my wife, 17 years married. If I can't speak to her, then our relationship isn't where it should be. And then um, my close friends, you know, somewhere between two to five, I've got to be able to voice my problems with. And they've, and hopefully they feel the same way they can voice to me. Unlike my childhood where you can't trust anybody, there's going to be a handful of people that you can truly 
trust and, and communicate with. Can you talk a little bit about your faith and how you rely on that, what it is that is so valuable to you in helping you make it through that most difficult time? Yes. Um, you know, first of all, the Bible to me is, is a great guideline to life. Not about if you're Christian or non-Christian, it doesn't matter. The guidelines, love all people, love your neighbor, because we don't know what your neighbor's going through. You don't know what I'm going through. I don't know what they're going through. But if we love each other and we, we support one another, just like a community should support everybody in the community, it's a beautiful thing. And so for me, my faith of knowing that, that people, people will let you down. You know, I have this idea of what my wife on this day should should say to me and she doesn't say what I want to hear and then I get mad about it. People will let you down, right? I, I'm going to let down my friends. I'm not going to be there for them at a time of need. So when I start digging into that and my faith and into the Bible, I learn that there's more to life than me winning trophies. There's more to life than me collecting a money. Uh, it's more to life than all these things. What's the purpose of my life? For me, it, it's something I wanted to do. I've been a believer for a while. And, um, you know, at that moment, it really hit me when I fell to my knees, uh, how I need to get dig deeper into it and, and get me where I want to be personally. Um, and so, yeah, my faith has helped me tremendously. Um, but like life, I'm still human, so I'm still going to make a lot of mistakes and need a lot of help on the way. Uh, so, Bob, I just want to give you the biggest hug right now. <laughs> I really do. Um, so many similarities. And, yeah, you almost had me crying because it's – like when when you go back to your stuff, I go back to mine, and it's just I know how difficult a time it is, and how you've come through it is incredible. So what I I want to go back a little bit because I want people out there to know what it's like when you have ADHD or when you have anxiety. I found that people, my teammates, didn't they thought I was a bad guy when I was just struggling inside to even hold a conversation or even you, like you said, you would see people would see you wherever you just want to go to Walmart. Someone comes up to you and you're just not having a good day and you, you have to be kind or you have to, or they're off telling their friends, well, that Bubba Watson, you know, what a jerk he is or that Corey Hirsch, what a, and it's not fair. It's not fair for people to perceive you like that or, or me. But again, my teammates, half of them wanted to get me traded and I was just struggling. Did you notice that on the tour and in real life? 100%. You know, in the book, Ben Crane pulls me aside. My caddies pulled me aside a few times, Ted Scott, for 15 years on my bag. They pulled me aside and said, man, I, I don't like which way you're going here. I don't like what you're doing here, which, again, is great because that's how I, I get better is people calling me out. But they called me out in a positive way. They didn't call me out like in front of millions of people or anything like that or on social media. And then, yes, in public, I mean, they get their, their 10 seconds or their five seconds to, to meet Bubba Watson or say hey to Bubba Watson. And, yeah, it's sad because that's how they're going to judge you. That, mm-hmm. that 10 seconds is the whole thing. And they don't know what – but, again, they don't know what's going on. What if I had to get home real fast because something's going on, somebody's sick, somebody's this, somebody's that? You know, nobody knows, but it, it's hard. Another thing that I think about is we put people on pedestals. Athletes, uh, movie stars, musicians, we put them on pedestals because they're winning, because they're good at their job or, or good at their entertaining. Really, their job is entertaining. And, and then the same thing with pastors. We put pastors of churches on pedestals and think they're not human. They're, they can't make mistakes. Um, but they do. I mean, we're human beings. We're going to make mistakes. And so, yeah, it's hard when you get that 10 seconds to meet somebody, and that's how you're going to base their whole who Bubba Watson is off that 10 seconds. You can't, 
that's not enough time to make an idea of somebody. Uh, you know, 10 seconds is not enough time. Uh, and this is the first time I've met you, but you are one of the kindest, most empathetic people. And I can see that in you. And it's just, you know, like I said, I just, I just want to give you a big hug because I've been through that stuff too. One of the things that I've dealt with a number of times, I write some posts and, of course, getting to know Corey, is the assumptions that fans make, that people make. And that's one of the things that you've struggled with. Who are these people making comments about me and they don't know me? In your book, you're writing very openly about some of these struggles with your mental health. And I guess I'm frustrated by this assumption of, well, he's got all this. He's got this wife. He's got this money. He's got this fame. What's his problem? How do you respond to that? Not that I want you to. I'd like you to stay off social media. But yeah. when you, how do you respond to that for other people who are struggling and feel that same burden that you carried? Yeah, I mean, gosh, we all have moments in our weak moments in our life, right? I mean, we, we don't feel our best. We don't do these things. Money is great if you're doing the right things with it, you know, trying to bless other people. But money will lead you down a wrong path real fast. You know, you start storing up material things. You start uh, exploring other, other ways to have fun. You can lose it real fast or you can, uh, you know, cause other issues in your life. And so, yeah, I mean, we're all gonna deal with something. If you don't have money, you got issues. If you do have money, you got some issues that can pop up that people don't think about. People are always pulling at you left and right to give here, give that. If only I had this amount of money that you could give me, I could change my life. Um, so you're always dealing with something. I mean, it doesn't matter what part of life or what part of walk of life you're at. Um, we all got something that's pulling us in a direction that's a, that's a negative direction or could be a negative direction. And I, that's why I got off social media, and it's the same reason why I'm focused on other areas and not focused on um, how I'm scoring uh, on the golf course. And right now I've taken, gosh, I've had two to three months, feels like three months off. Um, I haven't played golf, I haven't played in a tournament in a while. Just spending time with my kids, just enjoying life. And um, I got to do that or I'm going to break down again. And so I've got to, I figured out that I need some rest. I need to stay away from it and miss it. And once I start missing it, that's when I'll uh, go back to uh, chasing that, that golf ball around. Diane, as I have said, even personally, I have a hard time with faith. And it's not that I don't believe that something's out there. It's just, it's a difficult concept for some people to grab. You're mostly science-based, but what can religion do to help a person? There's actually a fair amount of science to support the idea that if you do have a faith, it can be really valuable in your journey to recovery, can support you in feeling that you're less alone and give you hope. So while it's not an essential part of recovery, for some people, it is critical to their well-being that they have that faith, they maintain it, and it helps to guide them along their journey with a mental illness. Have you ever had a situation where you felt that a patient or somebody believing in a higher power or religion might help them? And have you ever talked to somebody about looking in that direction? I talked to someone about whether or not they have faith and whether they think that would be helpful and encouraging them, not simply because of the fact that faith can be helpful if you do have it, but also to get out to church or to go to the synagogue or to the mosque 
because of the socialization that happens with that. If you're struggling with anxiety or depression or another mental illness, you can feel very isolated. You become more insular, less likely to go out and be around other people. And communities of faith are often very open. They want people to come. They make you feel welcome. They make you feel a part of a a larger experience. And so there's a value not just in your personal relationship with God or your faith, but also with the community. In my mind, it's also important, though, to be non-judgmental towards people. Some people don't believe, and that and that's okay. It's it's important to be non-judgmental to everybody. I think in a situation like this, but for some, faith can really help them. To me, judgment of faith is just—it's an oxymoron. It doesn't make sense to me that. One of the most important aspects of faith in my mind is that you do not judge. Who are you to judge another person? And whether you have faith or not, I still don't think that being judgmental helps anyone. Particularly important when someone's living with a mental illness and facing so much stigma. And it's so personal. So not only are they facing stigma externally, but also they're beating themselves up on the inside, as you know very well. Faith should be an opportunity to feel that you're not judged, to build your comfort, to build your safety and security. That's what faith is to me. So, Diane, we do know that having faith isn't going to cure a mental illness, just like yoga isn't going to cure a mental illness, a diagnosable mental illness. What is the recipe you think for people to lead better lives and to get better? My job as a psychiatrist is to meet people where they are and to view each brain as it is, which is as unique for every individual. So every individual needs a different approach, and also there's different severity of illness. So if you have a mild or moderate depression, you may find that exercise, eating healthily, and becoming more involved in your faith are what you need to help to turn things around. But if you have a moderately severe or severe depression, like you said, you can't yoga your way out of a depression. You can't blueberry your way out of a depression. And for a severe depression, faith is a support, as is exercise, as is diet, but it's not the answer. We know talk therapy is very valuable and has an impact on how your brain is structured and how it functions. And sometimes medication is an essential part of treatment, but everyone needs a different mix. And it depends on them, the number of illnesses they've had or how long they've been ill, and the severity of their illness. Bubba also talks about finally opening up to family and friends. What does that do for a person? It's critically important that when you do talk to the people who love you, who don't judge you, who care for you most, the science shows us that social support is one of the most protective factors in trying to recover from a mental illness. So the natural inclination when people are really struggling is not to talk about it, to be fearful, not sure, fear of judgment, and also you feel hopeless, useless, and worthless. Fighting through that, talking to people who love you, and including them in your life and in your journey to recovery, we know really has a positive impact. And if you're seeing a therapist that's saying, I don't want your family involved, that's probably not the best therapist to see. So what do you say? Sometimes people open up to family and friends and someone looks at them like they have 
three heads or just doesn't believe in it. I always tell people, well, that's not your people. You need to go talk to people that you trust that aren't going to judge you. But there are situations where someone might go to somebody and they might not believe in mental health. What do you say to people that struggle with that? I couldn't have said it better than you said, then they're not your person. Your mental health, and if you're living with a mental illness, that is a medical illness, and it is your personal information. So you shouldn't feel like you have to share it with anyone or everyone. Uh, it doesn't matter what family you're in, right? Auntie needs to know about No, she doesn't. <laughs> you mm -hmm. need to share with the people you feel comfortable with. And if you don't get the kind of response that feels respectful, that feels like it's supporting you— don't have those conversations anymore. You couldn't be more right in saying that's not the person to share with. Maybe you play cribbage with them or you go for drives with them, but you don't share about your mental illness because the whole idea of social support is support, is helping you to get through it, not to add to that burden. Success on the course couldn't fix Bubba's mental illness. Being open about it helped. He's finally been able to find more peace. Baba, you've obviously had a major journey coming up to this book, and we're going to ask you to talk a little bit about your book. But looking back now at what you've learned, what would you say to your 15-, 16-year-old self that might have better prepared them for the journey you've been on? What lesson oh. would you share with them? Gosh, I would share with myself that putting a green jacket on me, I think that was it. You know, that was that was the world to me. But it actually didn't help me at all. It actually made me more stressed because I feel like I should do it again the following week. I should do it again the next year. I should win the green jacket every year when that's not true. You know, I was blessed enough to get it the one time, blessed enough to get it the second time. But there's great golfers out there that never get a chance to win a major and they keep challenging themselves. And so I would tell myself that you learn more from the battles. Focus on the battles, the low points in life, the low points on golf, and then... Um, Keep your head up because you'll come through them. And so there's always better days ahead. So I have to follow up on that question with, what is your greatest achievement? Oh, man, greatest achievement. I would have to say, as of right now, as we sit, being open about the book, but the books, but let's say if the book wasn't there, I would have to say the Children's Hospital, the Children's Hospital in Pensacola, um, it's where I was born. My sister was born, my dad's last cancer treatments. But thinking about the legacy of the Watson name, what my parents brought to me, what their parents brought to them, um, when we're no longer here, that, that hospital's still going to give giving back to a community or to people in need. That would have to stick out right now. The hospital would have to be uh, a big one for me and my family. That, that It means a lot to us that we can give back no matter where we are in life. That powerful. We've been talking to NFL Hall of Famers, people at the top of their game. Not one of them has said that their greatest achievement was the Super Bowl. It's always something so much deeper, and I think that's, that's incredibly powerful. Thank you, Bubba, for that. I mean, we've talked a lot about your book, but the title and just so that we can make sure to include that and also any foundations that you're involved in that would be important for us to shed some light on. For me, let's go with the foundation, first of all. Um, you know, Bubba Watson Foundation. But truthfully, it's more about, like, we have things that, that hit our home. And, you know, 
adoption is a big one in our household. So it's not about my foundation or it's just about trying to help. There's kids in need that would really love to be loved, right? We don't ask to be put in situations. We're born into them. And, and so we'd love to, to help kids. Um, that's, the, that's the main one for us with two adopted kids. Um, the book, Up and Down, Victories and Struggles. Um, it's a pun, you know, it's up and downs in golf. So then up and downs in life. So yeah, it was. It's just about sharing, and sharing helps me. And then, um, but also sharing might might show somebody or, or let somebody hear something that might trigger some some positive stuff in their lives. What I love about you, Bubba, is, is that I went through the my first early in my professional career was all about me. It was all about me. You know, my game, my how I ate and everything. And now it's become all about everybody else and helping people mm. and being self-aware. And it sounds like you are in the same path. And I just want to thank you for today. You are one of the kindest, most empathetic. And I love this. This was amazing. We could talk for hours. But, <laughs> you know, just thank you so much. And, you know, I look at you and I'm just so proud of what you've done and what you've accomplished, what you've done with your life and going from those struggles and coming today and just being who you are and thank you so much and you're going to help so many people a real this, pleasure so to meet really you is. thank you yep. yes thanks thank y'all for everything thank right. you. take good Love care you, bud. bye-bye